This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend warriors of Michigan politics and government folks. A lot of things seem to be coming to a head as we near Christmas and the end of the most terrible of years, 2020. But I'd like to focus on just two of them today. First, as you know, Pfizer has apparently gotten approval from the Food and Drug Administration to move forward with its vaccine to combat the coronavirus. Some dosages may be administered by the end of this month. Although the mass rollout probably won't happen until spring of 2021 or even as late as next summer. So how does the public feel about this vaccine? We don't really know here in Michigan, but a national poll has just been released showing that 37 percent say they would get the COVID vaccine now although 20% say they will never get it. With the state's chief medical officer here in Michigan, Dr. Johnny Caldoun, advising that the first batch of COVID vaccines may be in the state as early as next week, the prevailing question around dinner tables these days is, will you get a shot? The polling folks at Quinnipiac, which conducted the survey, produced that answer that I just gave you, and they asked some other COVID-19-related issues as well. For instance, would you, I'm going to repeat it here, get the shot or not? 37% say they would get the shot now. 41% were not so sure and would wait a month or more to get it. And a hardcore 20% said never. Another question, are you wearing a mask? 74% say all the time. 13% most of the time. 3% said forget it. Now, the Michigan Information and Research Service newsletter, MERS as it's known, reports that there's also data on the impact on families. And last April, when the Quinnipiac folks asked the question, has the virus touched your life? 45% said yes. Now, that Answer to that same question is 74% say yes. They have been touched by the virus in some way, shape, or form, with 26% reporting no contact with anyone with the disease that they know. As for how people feel about the virus and when all this will be over, 57% feel it is getting worse, 13% feel it's getting better, And 28% report it's about the same. Likewise, 51% think it will take a year before it's over. 41% feel it will take just a few months. And 2% think it will be over in a few weeks. So let's go to item number two. Why was Rudy Giuliani in Lansing last week? Well, because of an historic Michigan case. By now, everyone should know that President Donald Trump's strategy in contesting the result of the November 3rd general election has been to get rogue state legislatures in four swing states to convene and award their state's electoral college votes to a presidential candidate 
who would not want a majority or plurality of the state's popular vote. If Michigan, and we're one of the four, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and or Georgia could peel back the 306 electoral votes that Democratic nominee Joe Biden seemingly has amassed to less than 270, the election would conceivably be thrown into the U.S. House of Representatives, where Republicans on a state-by-state unit basis have an edge. If that happens, the GOP might steal the election for Donald Trump. Now, 15 Republican state representatives here in Michigan and four Michigan GOP congressmen are supporting this move in the U.S. Supreme Court. But wait, you say, they couldn't do that, could they? Well, yes, it appears they could. And all because of a U.S. Supreme Court decision on an historic Michigan case back in 1892. Now, Trump, flashing forward to the present again, carried all four of the states that I mentioned above in 2016 against Hillary Clinton. This year, however, all those states were won by Biden by less than a 4% margin. All four of these battleground states currently have both chambers of their state legislature controlled by Republicans. Trump has said he does not accept the results of the election. He claims that the election has been rigged. He claims mail-in voting is fraudulent. Trump and Biden have both assembled armies of election lawyers to handle all election-related contingencies. The main legal battlefield Trump is focusing on is using his party's state legislative majorities to determine their state's electoral college votes. Rudy Giuliani, the former New York City mayor, who is now of counsel to Trump, appeared before a state house committee meeting in the state capital of Michigan in Lansing last Wednesday. Giuliani, who has tested positive for COVID-19 since he left Michigan, testified and answered questions for four hours while relying on an 1892 U.S. Supreme Court decision called McPherson versus Blacker. This opinion was released back in 1892 after the Supreme Court had convened for its 1892-93 term. That election in 1892 would be a rematch of the 1888 election between Republican President Benjamin Harrison and Democrat ex-President Grover Cleveland. Harrison in 1888 defeated the incumbent Cleveland in the Electoral College, even though Cleveland won the nationwide popular vote. Does that sound familiar? So McPherson and Blacker, on appeal from the Michigan Supreme Court, concerned a law passed in Michigan that was signed by a Democratic governor after passing a legislature consisting of Democratic majorities in the House and Senate to award each of the state's electoral votes to the winner of each congressional district, rather than the unit rule all or nothing, like a state gets all its electoral vote cast to the candidate who wins the popular majority in Michigan. After the 1892 election, Michigan would go on to award Cleveland five electoral votes and Harrison nine electoral votes, 
even though Harrison easily carried Michigan and would have won all 14 of Michigan's electoral votes under the old system, as he had in 1888. But Cleveland did better elsewhere in the country, and he reclaimed the presidency, winning both the Electoral College and the national popular vote. So in 1893, the Michigan legislature, now with Republican majorities and a Republican governor, repealed the law called the Minor Law. Ever since, Michigan has awarded all its electoral votes to the winner of the statewide vote. The 1892 election was over, but the high court's decision had been momentous. This case was the first U.S. Supreme Court decision to consider the constitutionality of the selection of presidential electors. And the majority opinion upheld the Michigan law, holding that the 14th Amendment does not require state legislatures to appoint their presidential electors based on the popular vote. So will Republicans this time around in the legislature endorse Trump's charges on mail-in voting and election corruption and name Trump electors? Republican leaders in the Michigan legislature have already indicated that will not happen. Even if it does, the same thing occurs in the other three states. There's the issue of whether House Speaker Nancy Pelosi would agree to seat Republicans elected in November because Democrats control the U.S. House. Meanwhile, time is running out. It's Monday, the 14th, start of this week. Ballots will be sent to Washington, D.C. to be formally tallied and announced before a joint session of Congress on January 6th. That's it for this section, but stay tuned for more guests. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We are back, and we have a really interesting guest on the line with us. He is John Roth, and he just was elected to represent the 104th House District. Now, that is all of Grand Traverse County, including Traverse City, in its entirety. Nothing more, no parts of other counties, and the entire county constitutes the district. I think there's only one other county in the state of Michigan of which that is true. That's Lapeer County, which is a house district all by itself. They're the only two out of 110. And John Roth uh, finally uh, grabbed the uh, victory, and by a fairly comfortable margin, after the votes were counted uh, November 3rd, uh, after a turbulent uh, tenure by his predecessor, State Representative Larry Inman, who technically right now is still in the seat, although he came close to being thrown out of the seat. I won't go into that, but uh, this district, the 104th, has become a kind of purple-like district uh, that the Democrats thought they had a good chance to pick up because Larry Inman was term-limited. And this was an open seat. And out of nowhere came John Roth. He won a primary, and then he won the general election. So, John Roth, welcome to the Political Insider. Thank you very much, Mr. Bellinger. I appreciate you giving me time to be here. Well, let me ask you, uh, were you kind of recruited to run for this seat? Uh, Because the Republicans were scrambling around trying to find somebody who looked like uh, they could win in November. Or were you always interested in running, or had you decided you were going to run anyway? 
Uh, probably more like the uh, I was going to run anyway. Uh, I was definitely not recruited by anyone. Uh, the state party did not recruit me. They were looking for a little bigger name in Grand Traverse County. There were a couple other names that were out there that they thought could potentially win just on name only. So they were looking at that. Uh, I decided, oh, a, a year ago, September, that I didn't see anybody stepping up that was willing to take the chance. There was a lot of negative tone in Grand Traverse County that no Republican could win. So I didn't believe that for a second. I stepped up and ran and uh, got in fairly early, and I went for it ever since. And then COVID happened, of course, and that surely made things very interesting. But uh, um, I always truly believe that Grand Traverse County was still a 2,500-vote victory for anybody that ran as long as they ran and did a good job at running. So I never bought that we were changed over to a Democratic area, or uh, I just thought if the right person ran, like myself, and, and worked hard and did it, we could still win by that fairly comfortable margin. Now, I believe you're a former chairman of the Grand Traverse County Republican Party. Is that correct? That is correct. I was chair for five years, uh, went through all the tough times with our, our, our current representative, and uh, absolutely. I had five years, Bill, as, a, as the chair of the party and also sat on our Grand Traverse County Parks and Rec Board for six years. So, um, you know, did a, did a little, of, little of everything in the community. Well, tell us some more about the John Roth background and story. Um, you know, what you've done. Were you born and brought up in Traverse City? Uh, no, I moved here when I was quite young, actually. My wife and I were 24 and 23, so we were kids. We moved to Grand Traverse County th- 33 years ago and started our life here and uh, truly believed this was going to be the area that we were going to stay at and uh, be part of and haven't regretted a second. Um, my uh, background is in recreation. I've uh, been in the tourism and recreation field uh, my whole life. I'm a, a manager of a private marina in Grand Traverse County and for fun of it, I sell skis in the winter, and along the way, I also worked at the country club locally to help them out a little bit. So I think that background really showed that I was a man of the people, somebody that worked hard, um, not somebody that uh, just is, has been given this position. And I had a lot of people during the campaign say, you're like us, you're working hard, um, you're not, you have no silver spoon, you, you're, you're busting your butt out here, so... I knocked on over 10,000 doors myself in Grand Traverse County, and our team did over 20 to the point that we were actually knocking the same door a couple times. So I think it was just the hard work that we did that really showed. And my opponent was a a very well-known attorney in town um, and did a good job also. But I think people thought that I was more of a man of the people and going to work hard for them just like I do for myself. You're knocking on doors – brings to mind obviously COVID-19 was it a bigger challenge going door to door do you think in a year like this compared to every other year we can imagine in the past Uh, Uh, certainly early Bill I I totally agree with that in the primary we had a real hard time getting started doing that we didn't start knocking doors until June uh, with not knowing how it was going to go we were concerned about that uh, but I was surprised at the reception we got. People wanted to see people at that point. Um, we were really, you know, courteous and knocked on the door, got off the porch, got away from. 
but uh, had very little comment uh, back that um, they were concerned about us being there. And so we just continued on and really didn't have a whole lot of trouble with people being uh, concerned about us being on their porch. So many of people actually along the way that I knew came out and shook my hand and uh, didn't have any problem at all. So we didn't know that going in, but I tell you that I think that really was the key to our victory. Yeah, some people have told me that uh, Ann Arbor is, excuse me, Traverse City has become a mini Ann Arbor, or, or even um, more appropriately, let's say Kalamazoo or yeah. uh, Grand Rapids, in that it is probably a Democratic city now, but it's surrounded by a sea of Republicanism out there in the townships around Traverse City. Did you go to door-to-door in all these rural areas as well? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we hit doors, Bill, that they said they'd never had a politician ever hit their door. I mean, we went to every reach of the county and uh, made sure we hit just every single door. We didn't care. And we hit the city of Traverse City, even though it did not go our way. Uh, You're absolutely right. The city has become what used to be, I think, about a 55-45 Democrat over Republican in the city to more like uh, I, I, well, I averaged about 31% of the vote in Traverse City. Wow. Yeah. It was the county which was the total difference. Um, the county is still very red. Um, I think people misunderstood that and really thought, I, I know the donors to my opponent thought that it was different, but uh, the county is still very red here. And there's areas in this county that, as a Democrat, you don't go. Uh, we had a story with... <laughs> There, Ken Benzie, who came down from the UP to knock doors for my opponent and got out in one of the furthest townships in the county where uh, I actually warned her to be careful. And uh, <laughs> and she, about an hour later, she texted us back and said, thank you for the advice, and I will never go to that township ever again. Oh, so there's certainly areas of Grand Traverse County that is just pure red. Wow. Well, um let me ask you this. What issues did you feel people really cared about the most? Uh, we don't have much time. We're almost out. But what, in a nutshell? Uh, businesses, Bill. People are very concerned about their business being closed and shut down. And that goes both sides of the aisle, not just Republicans. Right. Absolutely. Listen, I have blown it again by not getting in enough questions for John Roth to answer, which he does very well. So congratulations, John Roth, Republican of Traverse City, who was just elected to the 104th State House of Representatives district seat beginning in January. Thank you, John Roth. Thank you, Bill, and feel free to question me anytime. We'll do that. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back, and we have on the line with us Representative Brad Pocket, who is a Republican from Niles in Berrien County in the extreme southwestern corner of Michigan. He represents the 78th House District, if I'm not mistaken. That's the cities of Buchanan and New Buffalo and Niles and 17 townships in southern Berrien County and western Cass County next door. Is that correct, Representative Brad yes. Pocket? 
Yes, sir, Billy. You hit the nail on the head there. Very, very good description. Yeah, extreme southwest. Uh, it's unfortunate because being so close to Indiana, um, a lot of the uh, disparities between policies, uh, it's quite pronounced. So a lot of my constituents have been dealing with that, whether it be from auto insurance reform to MEDC grants to especially COVID pandemic orders. Yeah, it's, it's definitely something that uh, we see two worlds here. Yeah, I can believe it. And you have called for this scholarship um, called Future for Frontliners, and I believe it's funded by the CARES Act, C-A-R-E-S, CARES Act. Um, you called for that to be expanded to cover people who live in Michigan, probably most of them in Berrien County, who work across the state line in Indiana or maybe even in Ohio or Wisconsin. I mean, could you tell us what's going on there? Yeah, actually, the criteria right now, um, it, it doesn't say that you need to work in Michigan. It just says that you need to be Michigan residents. So this first came to my eye. One of my former students' parents um, works in uh, the medical field across the state line, and he brought it to my attention. He's like, hey, Brad, I, what's going on here? I, I'm a Michigan resident. I meet all the criteria. However, when I apply and put it in there, they say, oh, yeah, you have to work also in Michigan. But that's not abundantly clear um, in the criteria. So putting attention on that for my constituents especially, because this is nothing new. We, we, we de- I deal with all of this all the time with my constituents who uh, live across state line in all kinds of different ways, whether it be from the auto insurance and finding it cheaper in Indiana until we pass that reform to you know issues like this. So putting a spotlight on it definitely is my job because it's, a lot of my constituents don't really get hurt over here on state line, and we're in the extreme southwest corner. Even as you mentioned, we're considered Indiana sometimes. But, no, we need to make sure that our policies uh, aren't treating our Michigan residents that are on state line unfairly. Representative Pocket, what is the CARES Act? So with the federal dollars that have come down from to, to the states, is that what you're describing, that they passed? Yeah, from, yeah. and that's where so the money comes from for this scholarship, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's meant to free up uh, the funds to, to support, especially however the governor or our policies want to to, to go. It's there to free up the, the funds to support people that are, are struggling or to obviously, like the governor wanted to push here, is to support our, our frontliners. Um, so using the funds to you know, go right into to supporting them, especially uh, during this time and all the stress that, that's on them right now being uh, battling COVID. So, well. In other words, the governor is the one who determines the ground rules for how this money is distributed. I mean, the legislature has no say in it at all? Well, this was in the budget and was passed out through the budget uh, just recently. However, the criterion is very clear, um, and it doesn't say that you need to specifically work in Michigan. So when you look at, especially on the future frontliners, you go to the .gov webpage, Michigan.gov, um, the, the criteria is very clear there, and it doesn't say that you need to work in Michigan as well. You just need to be a Michigan resident. And so she has said, uh, you know, if you're you're not, uh, uh, let me get this straight, you're not a Michigan resident, that you don't get the money, is that it, if you work in Michigan? So uh, the website lays out that there are key requirements. There's like seven of them. And it doesn't say that you need to work in Michigan as well. My constituents, when they have applied for it, they meet all the criteria that is laid out. There's about seven or eight bullet points, and they meet all the criteria in their application. However, when they apply, 
they're getting this response back saying that they must also work in Michigan. But that wasn't laid out when we passed the budget and when the, the website lays out the criteria. So we're at a loss there and shining a spotlight on that. I know, especially through this entire, you know, from the MDHHS orders all the way back to April, when we voted to not extend the state of emergency because of this issue, a lot of our constituents or a lot of our representatives, when we try to shine a spotlight on these issues, we're just not being heard. And so we wanted to make sure that we're able to be heard on this in particular, because there is no reason that some of my frontline workers that reside in Michigan but work over in South Bend at the hospital there shouldn't be able to have access to this opportunity that was one of the governor's initiatives. Well, do you think this is an oversight on the part of the governor, or do you think she deliberately excluded these people if they don't work in Michigan? Well, I always think the best of people, so I don't, I, I don't think it was deliberate. I don't think it was malicious. I think that the problem is when you have really one person who is running the show, and especially with the MDHHS orders right now, um, I think that that's a problem because our form of government was set up to be a representative form of government, and there are 110 of us that are in the state house, 38 senators, and we have a lot of constituents with very, very different nuanced issues all across this great state, 10 million people, very vast state. When you drive from my district all the way up to Rep. Markin's district in the Keweenaw, it's like nine, ten-hour drive. So that's something that I think with one person who is calling the shots, she needs to be able to hear how there are a lot of different things going on, and that's part of my job. So that's what I'm hoping to do with this, get this attention uh, on her on her, uh, on her, her docket here so that these individuals are able to have this opportunity accessible to them as well. Well, you must have had some contact with the governor herself or her staff or other legislators must have contacted her long before now and said, Governor, for heaven's sakes, fix this. And it sounds to me well, like, you know, I mean, she hasn't done it for whatever reason. And so what are you doing now specifically? Is there a resolution you've introduced calling on her to do this? Well, we put it out here, and I think the media in particular is one of the ways to get things moving because we've sent scores of letters on, on many other issues, whether it be from the shutdown orders and things along those lines that have come to no, no avail. However, in this, I think when people are able to understand some of the, the, the issues that are going on for people, whether it be the inaccessible uh, opportunity here, even though all the criteria is met, to even back in the day when landscapers weren't able to go out and do their duty safely by themselves outside while folks in Indiana were picking up all these different contracts and working perfectly fine. And that puts a lot of people out of business to even the 45-cent gas tax increase proposal, which if that were to happen, I already have people that drive across state lines for five cents cheaper. And they do all their shopping, and they're going to be incentivized to just simply go to a place where it's more competitive. And that's something that needs to be deeply considered because we share borders with Wisconsin. We share border with Ohio as well. And that's something that, and Canada. So when you think about these things and with our policies, a lot of people are going to leave and they're going to go to places that are cheaper or more competitive. And on state line, like I mentioned before, it's especially pronounced a lot of these policies and how they need to be better. So, yeah, advocating in all possible ways to get this changed or modified because it's not, again, it's not in the criteria at all on the webpage or anywhere that I could find that you have to work in Michigan as well. Representative Paquette, um, you have also signed on a letter of support of the state of Texas challenge to Michigan's electors uh, for the decision 
on the presidential election. You and 14 others, and I think four congressmen have also signed on to it. And a decision uh, is imminent because the Electoral College uh, actually meets uh, on Monday, the 14th of December. Uh, What's your thinking along those lines? Yeah, so Bill, back when the absentee ballot applications were sent out um, using COVID funds by the Secretary of State, I had so many constituents sending in photos of four, five, seven-ish applications coming to their house with different names on them. And I thought that that especially, and I know it went through the Court of uh, Appeals and a handful of different courts, but I think that that broke the law because you cannot send out an application unsolicited according to Michigan state law. And that is exactly what the Secretary of State did using COVID funds. So I had a whole bunch of my county clerk, I mean, uh, township clerks reaching out to me and saying, hey, this is an issue. What is going on here? And at the time, I didn't really fully recognize the impact. Wow. Listen, I, I, we could keep talking about this. I want to keep talking about it, but we're out of time. So we'll get you back at some point after the dust settles on this. Representative Brad Paquette, 78th House Thank District. You. Thank you so much for being our guest. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned and we have on the line with us Representative Mark Heisinga. He is a Republican of Walker in Kent County. He represents the 74th House District. Now, the 74th House District, I believe, includes Cedar Springs, Granville, Rockford, Walker, five townships, mainly in northwestern Kent County. Is that correct? Representative Mark Heisinga. Yeah, that's correct, Bill. Okay. Well, uh, you share a name with your congressman whose uh, district, I believe, overlaps yours, Bill Heisinga, but I guess you're not related. But Heisinga is a pretty popular name over there in your neck of the woods, isn't it? Yeah, it is. In fact, you don't have to get too far out of uh, West Michigan before people don't know how to pronounce our name. But, uh, <laughs> you know, the folks that we represent, uh, they get the unfortunate benefit of being able to say they have Representative Heisinga in Lansing and Representative Heisinga in, in, in Washington. <laughs> Not too many can say that. Uh, look, no. you uh, were just reelected easily to your second term in the state house. Um, but right now you got a kind of uh, interesting scenario developing over there in your area. And that is your state senator, Peter McGregor, who's still in office right now, as I understand it, uh, represents the 28th Senate district which includes, I think, all the cities I just named that you represent, Cedar Springs, Granville, Rockford, and Walker, plus I think Wyoming is in his 28th Senate district, and he has not five townships in Kent County. Uh, He has 14. As you know, a Senate district is nearly three times as big as a House district. And here's the big story. Uh, Senator McGregor was just elected Kent County treasurer, last month, and I believe he takes office on January 1st. I could be wrong. Representative Heisinger can straighten us out, and when he does, he's going to have to resign his seat in the state Senate, and at some point this spring, there's going to be a special election to fill that seat, and Representative Heisinger is already indicating he's going to run for it. So uh, tell me, uh, Representative Heisinger, whether I got this right or not. 
Well, that's uh, that's correct, Bill. You know, I'm fully considering a run, and uh, we'll have an announcement coming out soon what that's going to look like. <clears throat> but Kent County has a long history of excellent public servants, and you know, I've had a, have it the pleasure of, of working with Senator McGregor uh, for a number of years and in a number of positions. Um, you know, I was the mayor of Walker before I was a uh, representative in the House, and uh, have worked collaboratively with uh, with Pete both as uh, as mayor and as representative. Uh, we've worked very closely together on issues, whether it's teleton halls, helping uh, our constituents understand what's going on with COVID or or law enforcement uh, and other things. And uh, uh, when that seat becomes vacant, then, you know, that creates a window of opportunity. And I tell people that oftentimes uh, that's what politics is. You can have the best strategy in the world, but sometimes these things just happen. So uh, we'll see what's how it goes, but uh, I look forward to uh, having an announcement in January. Representative Heisinger, do you think it's likely that Senator McGregor will endorse you? You know, I um, I haven't had that conversation with him. Um, the you know this is it, it's early, so that'd be premature to say that. Uh, but uh, you know, I think that I have a good reputation as a good legislator in uh, in Lansing, as well as a good reputation in my constituency here. Um, and and I'm hopeful that uh, you know we'll be successful as we uh, proceed. What is your background other than being mayor of Walker? I mean, you've held some other public positions, I think, in, in your background professionally or occupationally and your education, everything. Are you always uh, a Kent County man? Uh, were you born and brought up there? Yep, uh, brought up here. I grew up on a small farm in, uh, in Walker, in South Walker. My dad was a teacher, and so I had a chance to uh, learn about farming the hard way on my hands and knees, picking radishes and onions. Um, but, uh, you know, I first got involved in politics uh, only because I was appointed to the Planning Commission. Um, you probably know Rob Verhulen. He was former representative and former mayor of Walker. Right. Rob appointed me to the Planning Commission. Uh, but my background professionally is, is health care and finance. Uh, I've worked as a health care consultant for 20-some years, uh, my own firm, uh, doing uh, a lot of work especially related to uh, infusion drugs and uh, working with hospitals, pharmaceutical companies, and physicians. Um, I also own a software company. We do energy, waste, water, and food management for hospitals around the United States and Canada. So I think when you look at my uh, my pathway of in Lansing, uh, strong background in IT uh, and healthcare. I think that's probably why I serve on the DHHS uh, Subcommittee of Appropriations. And uh, last year I was uh, appointed chair of a special committee to look at uh, IT systems across the state. So proud to say that there was a five-bill package that came out of the bipartisan committee that passed the House uh, unanimously. And uh, so we like to do the hard work and uh, work for the people of the state of Michigan. Representative Heisinger, uh, you are in the House right now. What are your committees and or subcommittees? What do you do uh, beyond, you know, the bills that you just described? Yeah, so I'm on the um, on the Appropriations Committee, and uh, I sit on uh, – I chair the uh, subcommittee at – uh, general government appropriations, uh, which is, you know, about a $6 billion budget. Uh, I sit on the Department of Health and Human Services, Subcommittee on Appropriations, Higher Education, and K-12. through um, So not a lot. I don't have a huge background in education, but I've really learned a lot and uh, have enjoyed the process and uh, think we can bring some really good things to the uh, state in the next term. Yeah, 15 of your colleagues just this past week have signed on to a letter of support of the state of Texas lawsuit uh, against Michigan and three other states uh, trying to uh, change the rules on how electors are awarded. 
in the presidential election. That is, uh, even as we speak before the Supreme Court, unless they've made a decision by the time this airs, uh, were you asked to sign on to that? Did you? Uh, if not, why not? Uh, what's going on there? Yeah, you know, this election has uh, has brought forth many issues of suspect fraud um, and integrity, but it wasn't that those issues emerged uh, just recently. In fact, even pre-primary, I was at an event uh, this summer with a couple candidates and a constituent came up to me and had a number of concerns about uh, fraud and uh, and how elections can be rigged and things like that. I told them that I was the mayor of Walker uh, in the past and that I work close with my clerk and that the clerks uh, independently have uh, an immense amount of integrity, at least the ones that I've known on this side of the state. And, um, you know, I said, uh, well, let me, let's go talk to another clerk, and there's a township clerk there. I brought, her, brought him over there and talked to her, and he brought out the same four questions to her, and she was able to answer those questions. And, uh, and, and he really walked away and said, boy, I feel a lot better about the process right now. I think right now is that we're just dealing with a lot of mystery and people are concerned about things. But, you know, we have the Joint Oversight Task Force. That committee has uh, really taken the trust but verify type methodology, uh, bringing in uh, various clerks, uh, including uh, Republicans and Democrat clerks from around the state. I know the clerk from uh, Ingham County was in, and as well as the clerk from Kent County, Lisa Postumas-Lyons. Uh, and and they're, they're there to make sure that the process is good and it has integrity. And I've gotten many calls from uh, my constituents about the election and um, say the same thing. We want to ensure that there is integrity in our election. Without that, um, the basis for what we have in America could be lost. And uh, it's important that we turn over every stone and that we validate that what's happening is done correctly and appropriate and is repeatable. Yeah, switching subjects, um, they're debating in Washington right now, as you know, another coronavirus relief package. One of the hangups I'm hearing at the last minute is uh, whether or not it's going to include substantial revenue for state and local governments like you guys got last spring and summer, which really bailed Michigan out. Uh, what happens if uh, some kind of a package either passes without any relief for state and local governments or doesn't pass at all? Are you guys in a world of hurt up here in Lansing on appropriations? You know, Bill, the whole uh, budget process this last year has been extremely fluid. And to say that the process since I became elected as a representative has been uh, kind of an anomaly is, is really uh, true. Um, last year, I think that we really worked on three different budgets. The governor's uh, uh, recommendation when it came out uh, was, was uh, round one, and then COVID hit, and then we were prepared to make some significant cuts, and then revenues wound up being stronger than we expected. Uh, and we're, I think we're in the same position this year. We just don't really know what the revenues are going to be. I happen to believe that the, recon- the economy is probably a little bit stronger than most people think. Uh, there are certain segments, of course, that are in a terrible world of hurt. Uh, but others are, are doing uh, quite well. Uh, just last week, we saw some numbers come in uh, that some of the revenues for the school aid fund were actually higher than projected. Uh, so we're dealing with anomalies. So it's hard to say what the actual impact is going to be. Um, but your listeners need to know that we'll work hard to make sure that every taxpayer dollar is used wisely. Uh, hardworking taxpayers uh, need to know that, that we're spending this the right way. I think when you look at local government, too, we, we, that was one of the big priorities I had. That's um, under the auspices of the general government uh, subcommittee on appropriations. And we kept them whole. And uh, that's our local law enforcement, it's police, fire, it's local roads. Right. And to maintain that's really critical. So we'll continue to work to ensure that this is the case. Um, uh, again, we don't know what the budget's going to look like next year, but we'll see once. 
I know you'll do a good job, Representative Mark Heisinger, Republican of Walker, representing the 74th House District, possible candidate to fill the seat in the 28th Senate District. Thank you, Representative Heisinger. Thank you, sir. We'll be back next week with still more.